We've come to the end of the second season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. It has been a great privilege to do this work for you, to get to talk to interesting and knowledgeable servants of God about Bible application. Today, however, I'm just going to have to admit up front that I failed to hew tightly to our theme, Bible application, for this upcoming interview, and I don't care. I read a great book, highly relevant to Bible study, and I just wanted to talk to the author. He is particularly articulate, and you can hear his love for the Bible and the church in his words. Listen in. Welcome to the final episode of the second season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Mitch Chase is my guest today. He is the pastor of Cosmosdale Baptist Church, which, and I looked this up, etymologically speaking, means the uh, the Universe Valley Baptist Church. I looked this up on Wikipedia. It's a neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Chase holds a PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in that same town. He was uh, biblical theologian Jim Hamilton's first PhD student, and he can write. His book, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory, is genuinely good. We're going to talk about it today. It reads smoothly. It shows a humble grasp of scripture and of church history. I'm really glad I read it, and I wanted to have have Dr. Chase come on to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Dr. Chase, thank you so much for serving the church by being on the podcast today. Brother, it is a pleasure to be with you. I'm so glad. It's an honor. I want to acknowledge at the outset here that the connection to the theme of this season, which is Bible application, might get a little more tenuous in this episode than it normally is. Um, this won't always be super practical. Our discussion won't be, but you're talking to two people who love, you're listening to two people who love the church as well as loving academic biblical studies. So we're going to try to make this useful. I know we will. But in another sense, how, knowing how to relate the Old Testament to the New Testament is nothing but practical. It's a question that you face practically every time you pick up your Bible. And Dr. Chase's work on these topics, typology and allegory, can help us here. So, Dr. Chase, I'm going to start you off with a softball question, as easy as taking a baby from candy. What is a type? <laughs> that is the perfect place to begin. What is a type? Um, when I think of the word type, and how it's used in the New Testament. I think of language like pattern, language like impression. The uh, standard definitions of books that are studying this hermeneutical reading method, they are, they're gonna be defining it chiefly as a person, an institution, an event that's forward pointing. That gets at the essence of it, a forward pointing thing in the Old Testament. I, uh, I offer in my book, uh, a fuller definition that I think captures both an office, a place, things. Uh, I, so I'm suggesting that a type is something that's a person, an office, a place, a thing, an institution, or an event that is all forward pointing. And this, this is a way of saying a type corresponds or has in some way a match with what comes later on. And so a type is a, a way of noting and reading the whole canon with an interconnected set of earlier events, institutions, people, and all the rest that's anticipating something. Excellent. And I, I hear overtones from your work under Jim Hamilton, and a lot of your footnotes are coming to my mind as I hear you talk. Just like the previous conversation I happened to have with Nancy Guthrie last week, I see you doing some hard work in good academic books to be really responsible in defining what a type is and then discovering them in scripture. So let's talk some more about types. We're going to go now from softball questions to the hot seat because my own ordination questioning is in two days and I want others to feel my pain. So. One thing I'm wary of in Bible interpretation is people taking run-of-the-mill normal Bible words like love and turning them into technical terms that they can then pile up specialized meanings on top of, you know, meanings which subtly then actually end up coming from outside the Bible. So, you've got Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 10 that certain things happened in the Old Testament as examples for us 
The Greek word there could also be translated type. You've got the writer to the Hebrews saying that Moses was given an example of the tabernacle, and the Greek word there could also be translated type. Do you think the biblical writers really had in mind all that you have in mind when you talk about types in Scripture? That's such an important question. I do not want to be guilty of imposing something on the biblical authors. Um, I want to try to read them in a way that I'm following what I hope to be their cues and uh, their own method that is setting forth a way of reading scripture. And uh, so I'm glad you brought up 1 Corinthians 10. Paul does talk about earlier things in Israel's days being examples. Uh, it's interesting when you read in chapter 10 around, I think it's in verse 5, verse 6, verse 11, These uh, la the language about examples is used um, to make immediate application for his present readers. He says, on whom the end of the ages has come. Um, and that's a pretty big statement. Uh, the generation before Paul wouldn't have been able to quite say it that way. Something is unique about that Jesus generation, about that first century group of, of apostles, so that these earlier events, the some of the ones Paul recognizes in 1 Corinthians 10, they have this escalated, culminating significance. The end of the ages has come upon what's gone on in Jesus and that generation. Um, so I, I hope I'm, as I'm thinking about typology and typological reading, I'm wanting to show the significance of the end of the ages that Christ has inaugurated. The, um, the writer to the Hebrews can help us here too. He talks about various shadows, various copies of things in Hebrews chapter nine. He calls them though copies of heavenly things, um, shadows of things that are true. And uh, he's contrasting the earthly versus the heavenly. And so when I'm, when I'm uh, wanting to read a greater significance with a, on the redemptive historical timeline, I'm wanting to follow the language he's using by appealing to those earthly copies and saying, well, what are they copies of? And if they're, if they're shadows, then what is giving that light? What, what is casting those shadows into the Old Testament era? So I don't want to be imposing anything on the biblical authors. I want to look at the language they're using, and, and I, I can discern from their language. They see these earlier people and institutions and events and patterns pointing toward what the end of the ages was for Paul. Yeah, I, I love that image that you brought out just now of the shadow. So that metaphor comes up a couple times in the New Testament. It's like you're on the timeline, light is shining from Christ back through something and it's casting a shadow back the other direction. And one way you persuaded me, and you did, uh, you know, that I put you on the hot seat, but I was already persuaded that typology, you know, you're not adding more technical meaning than needs to be there, is that you did pick up on other language, not just type, but shadow and copy that also says, okay, look back for evidence of stuff that's pointing forward in the Old Testament and, and generally speaking, pointing at least toward Christ in a way that involves Christ. Now, I, you had a great line that I actually read multiple times. You said, typology would not function in a deistic world. If there is no providence, there is only coincidence. You know, deism, you know this, but for any viewers who are a little fuzzy on it, it's like the divine watchmaker, God makes the watch, winds up the watch, and then goes on a vacation and leaves the watch to run. That's the way deists view the universe. And there's no typology in a universe like that. But this line of yours maybe want to ask a question that I acknowledge may require speculation on your part, but you spent so much time in this topic. I just want to know what you think. Why would God choose to arrange history typologically? Why would, why would he bother, do you think, to set up echoes in events, you know, shadows, copies, things pointing forward? Yeah, uh, well, so that will involve a little bit of speculation. I don't think it's completely ungrounded from Scripture since God does all that he does to glorify his name and his uh, character in the world. I do think typological events fit with that kind of goal. So um, if we think about the work of providence in history, connecting event after event and person and all ultimately pointing to Christ, 
one of the things about God that this demonstrates is God's sovereignty over the world. So if there are a series of connections that he has embedded uh, to then be recorded in his word that are all going to point forward to his son, then he truly is showing himself through such typological organization to be the Lord of history. There's no removed deity that can do that. Uh, this is a God whose hands are in the mix of it all. And, uh, and we gladly affirm that. And we want a God who cares about the details of history in this way. I also think it shows the faithfulness of God. If the character of God is on display through typological events, we can say his faithfulness it shines so brightly. Um, as events anticipate something, as characters foreshadow something, um, the faithfulness of the Lord carries across his plan or carries across that plan across the ages. And the, the reader can rejoice in his faithfulness. We might, we might also add um, one of the elements that's beneficial to us in seeing the Lord's faithfulness is it can stir our own hope. If we, if we see that the God of the ages who has superintended history and all of its fine-tuned events and, um, and uh, institutions in the scriptures, if he, is, if he is garnering all of this momentum toward Christ, then we can be a people of tremendous hope. Like in the Exodus, the Israelites in the days of the prophets were listening to those prophets like Isaiah appeal back to that former pattern, that former event of, of victory. And, and it was a way of saying, our God did this, and we have hope that he can do it again. Uh, so those, those events can stir hope from the people of God into the faithfulness of God, and all for the glory of God. And I don't mean to just be, you know, bumper stickerish with my uh -huh. language. I think that there is just a great theological uh, set of assertions we can make that's not really speculation. Uh, we, we see that this is how the Lord delights to exalt himself. Right. The, the Passover meal that was supposed to be celebrated every year and, of course, has been now for these thousands of years was, among other things, a way of saying from generation to the next generation, our fathers were slaves in Egypt. And look, this exodus, this salvation of the Lord is a type. It's, it, it shows us what he's like. You make me think also of a little book that I won't name because we probably sell it on the Lagos Bible software ecosystem. Um, but he told the whole story of scripture. He's a powerful, you know, energetic writer. And I got to the end and there's a lot of good stuff in there. And I realized he didn't say a single word about Israel. There was no place for Israel in this epic sweep of the story of scripture that this particular writer that I'm not naming uh, gave. And, it, and it's like he just, he was missing out on this element that you're talking about. It's one thing for God to say in sort of a propositional way, you may have hope, Christian people. It's another thing to say, look at all these stories in which I acted in this way. I'm the same God. That's wonderful. It, you, you did concern me a couple of times. You got me a little bit nervous, although I'm just going to give the end of the story and say that you allayed my nervousness. Because, um, for example, here, here's a good way of putting it, I, I hope. Um, you quote Gerhardus Voss saying that fanciful types found in scripture would, quote, bring the whole subject of typology into disrepute. And indeed, this is the way it was for me. Growing up, I heard that the scarlet thread that Rahab let down from her window was a type of the blood of Christ. And I found this at the time, even as a kid, I really do remember this, to be fanciful, just too much of a stretch. But I admit that you gave me pause when I found out from your book that that particular idea has a very, very old pedigree among teachers of the church. What do you think of that particular idea? Of Rahab's cord. Yeah, I. this is one of the classic illustrations where people can... Um, can make a case for being suspicious of allegorizing or typological reading uh, because Rahab's cord seems in the, in the chapter of Joshua 2 to not necessarily mean anything more than that. And I remember um, some years ago listening to a seminary professor at an institution that I won't name. Uh, he, he, he said, typological reading plays almost no role in the way I read the Old Testament. And, um, and that, that was a pretty strong statement from somebody who'd been teaching the Old Testament for decades, 
that it would play almost no role. And then I would wonder, you know, how would he view Rahab's cord? Um, I, I understand hesitancy about this particular illustration, but Rahab's cord has very specific thematic and lexical connections to the Exodus. So if it, one way that I think we can show something that is forward pointing, uh, even though it's unidentified at the moment as a forward pointing type, is we can show parallels with identified events or people that are forward pointing. G.K. Uh, Beale points this out in his book, The New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And I think he makes a strong case that unidentified types paralleled to identified types uh, are, are a, a way to, to show uh, the grounding, exegetical warrant. If we, uh, if we think about Rahab's cord, which was your question, uh, then, um, then we have to think about the exodus that involved in the 10th plague, the covering of a household with blood on the doorposts and the lintel. And then judgment passes over the home so that everybody in the, underneath is spared. The Israelites are going to go into the promised land in Joshua. And under Joshua's leadership, not a not a not uh, an, an angel like in the 10th plague that will strike down the Egyptians in the household, but the Israelites will be instruments of conquest. And Rahab's family will be spared the judgment. It will pass over them if their home is covered or with this cord hanging from the window visible so that the judgment will avoid them. And, and if we can connect Joshua 2 with the previous Exodus, which I think Moses wants us to connect in his writing uh, in, in, um, in Exodus, with the Joshua story, if we can connect the writing of Moses with that parallel account, I think we can see Rahab's, sto Rahab's story, the cord itself. It's not necessarily an outlandish symbol anymore that's needlessly imposed upon by modern readers or even some in the early church. Rather, we have something that's actually part of a redemptive pattern where judgment is passing over. If we make a case textually, thematically, with the Exodus, I think we can say Rahab's cord does point forward, and we can uh, affirm it in that way. So the cord could not have been green. You know, I think the cord could have been green. I don't necessarily focus on the color, but on okay. the fact that an object was put uh, on the window. I think the color can sometimes be what tantalizes interpreters. There might be yeah. some who make much of that. I'm less concerned about the color than the fact that there might be other thematic parallels. I believe that Tyndale's plowboy, the average person, should have the Bible in contemporary language. That Bible translations, therefore, are key tools for the Great Commission that Christ gave us to disciple the nations, to teach them to observe everything Christ has commanded us. I believe that regular Christians can and must read and study their Bibles on their own. I believe that we're not on our own, that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. And I believe that one of the Spirit's most important tools for doing this is other human teachers, despite our own failures. I believe in Bible study. And all this is why I find myself constantly turning to Logos Bible software in all my work. It makes the Bible text accessible to me at a level of detail I just don't get elsewhere. And it also gives me quick and inexpensive access to the work of many, many careful Bible teachers. The new Logos 9 now makes it even easier for me to do this. And I want to show you what I mean. If I type in any Bible passage into the passage guide, I get a prioritized list of links to all my commentaries. Logos 9 is all about small improvements that add up to something bigger. And now in this new release, Logos 9, Logos gives me extra information about all my many commentaries, including even what denomination their authors come from. This is information that does help me in my Bible study. I'm all the time doing this, checking on my commentators, getting help from them, understanding scripture. Logos 9 has other small but big improvements like dark mode for all you dark mode people out there. I'll never understand you, but more power to you. It has the totally revamped fact book, a great place to start your study on all kinds of biblical topics. 
Christianity can get unmoored from the Bible, and what a horror it is when that happens. Don't let it happen to you. Use the best Bible study tools there are. Use Logos 9. Go to Logos.com and check out some of our base packages. Download our mobile app and start using the tools there. If you listen to a podcast about Bible study, you're probably pretty serious about it. You should not remain content with the free resources available on the internet. Check out the new Logos 9. Boy, that, that is really excellent. I want to kind of re-say some things that you said to encourage listeners, not just to buy your book, although I certainly do, but to think about this inner biblical exegesis, this typology, looking for things that point forward. Because what you just did was you gave a very disciplined account, right? You're looking for textual warrant. You use that word. You are looking to be, and this is a word you use in your book, bridled by the text itself. But you're saying that when this Old Testament scholar you heard from an institution you won't name who taught for decades in evangelical institutions, when he says typology plays no role, he's having to shove aside some things that the New Testament actually tells us were types. And you're also saying, I think, that we can't just stop there. We shouldn't just stop with what is explicitly named as a type in the New Testament, because we do have other textual warrant, other uh, good exegetical reasons to point to individual elements of, you know, well, things, events, people, etc., like you name in your definition, that, that, that point forward. Am I accurately summarizing you? You certainly are. And I know that one concern people can voice is that, hey, we're not inspired apostles. Why would we try to even go about this task? Maybe we can grant that there are types, but maybe those are exhaustive and we should not be trying to see any more. Um, however, even though we're not inspired interpreters, none of us would want to claim apostolic authority in that way, then um, we have to consider, though, what Jesus taught his apostles and what his apostles have given as examples to read the Old Testament in their own letters for their readers, their readers who are not inspired interpreters, and yet have examples and ways of reading shown to them by the authority of the apostles about what to see in the Old Testament. I think we should see the writings of the apostles as giving us a kind of lens to read in the way they do. It doesn't mean we won't make mistakes, but we want to try to read the Old Testament as Jesus taught his apostles to. So on the one hand, I mean, even as a kid, I really do remember this. I'm not making this up for the purposes of this interview. I remember being uncomfortable with certain typological readings. I felt they were too fanciful, if I recall correctly. And this I just don't remember. I think I, I heard a lot about the scarlet uh, color of the cord because it points to Jesus' blood. And I'm just thinking, you know, I've already been taught to read my Bible, even just by memorizing Awana verses and talking about them um, with my leaders and with my parents. My dad was an English major, an analytical guy, a good reader, and a, 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 a Socratic teacher. Um, I was uncomfortable with where that went. But on the other hand, I get to undergrad and I'm studying Bible in a Christian college. And I also feel uncomfortable with somebody saying, well, those are apostles. We can't interpret the Old Testament the way they did because we don't have that authority. I'm thinking, I don't like that either because it sure seems to me that Paul set himself up as a model. I ought to be able to learn something from his own exegetical practices. Same with the uh, author of the, uh, the, the book of Hebrews. So I feel like what you've done is help me find a middle way between feeling like, ah, that's too fanciful. You know, that particular type. So no, let's discipline our types. Uh, make sure they have exegetical warrant in the text of scripture. And then on the other hand, you're uh, finding a, a way in between this excessive skepticism, which is not even willing to read the Old Testament with the kind of Christological eyes that the apostles quite clearly used. And without that tool, it's like, what do you do with uh, Matthew 2, 14 or something out of Egypt? I've called my son, then you're like, wow, then the apostle is like messing with this passage. Can you talk about that passage real quick? Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Sure. So when, when Hosea 11.1 1 is quoted by Matthew, this is one of those cruxes where, what are we going to do now as an interpreter? Are we going to say, like some New Testament scholars have been willing to say, that Matthew's gospel distorts the meaning of Hosea? 
Or should we see that when Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures of Israel, one of the ways he's fulfilling it is by also embodying the life of Israel himself, that he is experiencing things like exile, temptation in the wilderness. He's ascending mountains and displaying glory. There are various episodes in Matthew's gospel that are very clearly meant to associate Jesus with Israel as if Jesus is the corporate son himself uh, embodied in, uh, in, in the son of God. With that being the case, in Matthew 2, Jesus has travels involving the promised land and Egypt. He is the fulfillment of the pattern of Israel where God calls out his son from a place of captivity. And so I don't think Matthew is messing with Hosea at all. Matthew is recognizing in the fulfillment of scripture that Jesus is not just fulfilling what seems like a direct messianic prophecy, but also larger patterns of Israel that were meant to be taken up by Israel's Messiah. So the patterns also become promises. And that's a key thing to note with typology. We're looking for correspondences and patterns in the Old Testament, which when repeated and with corporate sonship language so carefully tied to Israel, we shouldn't be surprised at all that Jesus experiences things in Matthew's gospel, like in Matthew 2, that remind us of Israel. Matthew's pointing us there, not because Matthew doesn't understand the Old Testament. Matthew is reading large matrices and patterns of the Old Testament as being fulfilled in Jesus. You know, whether this is true of Matthew 2.14 or not, and I'm going to bet that it is, what I'm about to say is probably true of Matthew 2.14, is it generally true that when we run into passages today where we're kind of scratching our heads, wondering how is the, how can I say that the apostle in the New Testament is treating the Old Testament text, you know, fairly according to authorial intent, even if I bring in the divine author? Isn't it generally true that that question has been raised for many centuries before now? Indeed, it so has. And and I think that as as Bible readers, we want to be historically contextualized so that we recognize I'm not bringing to Matthew's gospel a question that's not been asked before, except in like the modern era. People have been trying to relate the New Testament and the Old across the great tradition. Well, then let's immerse ourselves into that dialogue as charitable readers who are giving the benefit of the uh, benefit of the doubt to the apostles and not coming at it with a posture of skepticism, wanting them to you know, prove their math before we agree with their answer. Uh, instead, we should trust that as inspired apostles, we want to learn from them and we want to look at the ways they have treated the Old Testament. And I think it was Peter Lightheart who has put it this way. There have been some others over the years. But he suggests that typological reading is the primary way that the New Testament authors read the old. Now, if that's true, that's an extraordinary claim. It would certainly fit nicely with the church tradition that has held typological reading to be such an important reading strategy. And I think it would behoove us as, um, as 21st century readers to consider this strategy of reading the text that may have even more importance than we realize. Growing up, you know, everybody ends up critiquing some elements of their growing up, no matter how good it was. And my, my, uh, you know, I just thought of the Spanish word for some reason, rather than the English word about growing up. I can't remember what the English word is, but those years um, were very good. I was taught so much good about how to read the Bible. Um, but something that I think wasn't quite right was uh, an idea that I was often given that tradition itself is bad. We are Bible people. We don't need tradition. You know, it's other other Christian traditions who need tradition, and they let tradition override scripture. But as the years passed, and as postmodernism kept pointing out the situatedness of every reader, and I couldn't deny it, I had my own cultural background, etc., uh, I, I began to see that no tradition should play an important role because it does. I need to be self-conscious about the tradition that I'm in. So when you say the great tradition, and you capitalize it in your book, GT, great tradition, what are you talking about? Sure. I'm thinking about 
the line of biblical interpreters that go all the way to the post-apostolic era. And I'm thinking about that early church period into the 100s, 200s, and 300s. I'm thinking about the medieval saints. I'm thinking about those that preceded the Reformation and after. When I think about the great tradition, I'm referring to a line of thinkers and theologians who, even if they didn't agree with each other in all the minutia of theology, they approached the Bible convinced of its inspiration, its unity across the two testaments, and that there was a trajectory of hope from the old into the new that was Christological, a messianic hope rooted in the early parts of Israel's scriptures. And when they approached the Bible, they approached it as a canon given to us by a divine author through human authors. These, these particular convictions that characterize their approach, we need that to characterize our approach. If we want to be like those in the line of what we're calling the great tradition, um, I would I would be concerned that many at work in Old Testament and New Testament scholarship are writing about and studying the Bible, but those are not the convictions they share and the conclusions they draw and interpretations they draw uh, from the text will certainly demonstrate that. Yeah, I find it very comforting to see myself as part of a long tradition. I would expect that just like the Lord said to one of the prophets, you know, I have my 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, and that that would have been true throughout the history of the church. And you helped demonstrate that. And again, carefully, you're not saying that every figure in church history interpreted the Bible, uh, you know, in a perfectly orthodox way. You're acknowledging they disagreed among themselves. You know, we have the famous book from the Middle Ages, Sic et Non, Yes and no, the, the fathers don't always agree about everything, but there is this scarlet thread almost going back through that, through that history. And something else that you brought out, I thought was so interesting. Um, I'm going to skip ahead now kind of uh, to the talk about allegory, but you were showing that Calvin, who I can see every time I go into Calvin's commentaries, I think, wow, he clearly set the tone for the stuff that we're doing today. And just the way he treats the text feels like it could have been written yesterday. Sometimes I go to Calvin and I really do feel like, why did we bother to write all these commentaries in the centuries since? Like he already nailed it. He gave the options and gave good reasons for that one. So I've always taken that as an affirmation that my reformational Protestant evangelical Orthodox tradition is rooted in at least, you know, 500 years of history. But you actually took it the opposite direction and pointed out that Calvin is uh, has a definite continuity with pre-modern interpreters. So, what I think that I'm gathering from you is we really can, as evangelicals who believe that the Bible is divine, point back to a long, long, long history of people who've read the Bible basically as we have. Yeah, I think that's well said. I know that Calvin and Luther, there were others as well, they they did express concerns about certain figural readings of the Old Testament. They were concerned if something seemed to downplay its historical significance or to deny it altogether. They um, they were concerned about over-allegorization. -alleg That's a big word, over-allegorization, which certainly happened. We don't want to deny that at all. And so we can sympathize with their concerns. But then when you read their commentaries and you read their letters and writings, they did speak about the Bible and interpret the Bible in continuity with previous convictions. And, and therefore, Calvin is not an example of like a post-Enlightenment, um, post-modern interpreter, as much as he would be a pre-modern interpreter, giving us the right instincts to have as we read the Bible. As we read the Bible. Yeah, one of the things that so encouraged me in, in reading your book was seeing that throughout time, you know, I, I really I honestly was embarrassed to have to admit to myself that I didn't really know this. Many figures over the centuries, and we're talking way back to the time of origin, had actually given self-critique, you know, to the church or, or complained about the fanciful allegorizations that they saw in other writers. So it's not like this is a brand new concern. It goes back a long way. Now, we've been talking about allegory, and then I said I was skipping ahead. So I want to get back to uh, the kind of beginner question about allegory. Another softball ball before the hot seat. What what is 
allegorical interpretation of Scripture? Yeah, this this is one of those questions, and I know you're calling it a softball question. I don't know how happy everybody who has ever defined allegory will be with my definition of it. But from my read of the resources and study of the matter, I think we can say allegory can be simply put as saying one thing and saying something else with it. It's it's a way of of adopting a deeper meaning below the surface of the text so that there is a significance deeper than what merely appears to be the case. Um, Therefore, um, allegory can raise concerns that if a reader is engaged in something that's allegorical interpretation, are they saying that the events being interpreted didn't really happen? Allegorical interpretation doesn't have to mean that there was no real historical significance or reality. And Galatians chapter four is a demonstration of this. Paul certainly believed in a real Sarah and Hagar and the sons who came from them. But Paul also recognizes that the Lord uses those particular events to signify and more deeply unveil truths that would be seen later on. And so allegorical interpretation, this is definitely the more controversial section of the book. No doubt. (laughs) Yeah, I was just listening. I'm listening to the New King James uh, audio Bible uh, each morning, and I was listening to Judges, and I'm going to forget the details here, but there is an allegory in Judges of the bramble who uh, the trees say, come and rule over us. And when you read those details, I mean, it's utterly obvious. All the genre clues are there. You know, brambles don't actually talk. Trees don't actually talk. There's this surface level meaning, you know, that a five-year-old would get, but anybody beyond the age of five is going to get, he's actually talking about something else or Pilgrim's Progress. Um, But a point that you made repeatedly and demonstrated from people like Luther and Calvin and going back further is that you don't have to you don't have to in allegory to, for it to count as allegory you don't have to be saying that you know worldly wise man and uh, evangelist and interpreter and all and all the uh, uh, figures you know giant despair and his wife diffidence they didn't really exist right but that's That's not what biblical writers are saying. Uh, You demonstrated that from Paul. All the same, you know, I came into this thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I've already got this interview scheduled. It would be really awkward for me to have to back out of it now. I wonder where he's going to go with this. Um, So I'm going to pose to you sort of again a question. uh, Actually, I'm going to put it the way you did. Couldn't allegorizing texts simply be a risk too great to take? Why do we have to do this? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, I would I would agree with almost all of the words in the question. Is it a great risk? I mean, it definitely is the more risky of the waves of reading. Too great to take. So that was the last part of your question. Well, I think in the end, it's worth being patient interpreters that over time are reading and rereading the Bible, um, exposing ourselves to faithful teachers of God's word and in line with the great tradition, because I don't think allegorical instincts are developed easily and early on and necessarily soundly. Um, it can it can feel like riding a bike initially where there might be a lot of slipping and falling, there might be a lot of stumbling and tripping, and um, we don't want such a, a hermeneutical mess. So I, I think that it can be helpful for us to dialogue with community a lot about what we are reading. You know, it's good to to ask ask uh, somebody, hey, I was reading this particular narrative and I wondered this. Am I just thinking too much about the text? Am I over-reading it here? We can all have these tendencies. It's not, it's not uh, beyond any of us. But I do think that over time uh, and with the work of the Spirit within us, we can see much of the text in a way that early on we simply didn't because we were more untrained in our minds. Our theological instincts were underdeveloped or absent altogether. Um, Luther believed that it should not be among spiritually immature people to have instincts for allegorizing. He wanted that to not be the main way they read the Bible, nor should we base our doctrines and main teachings of the faith on what we would call supposedly allegorical readings of of the text. And yet, here's the and yet, um, and yet, is it worth the risk? Well, it seems that in order to understand passages of the Bible, there are 
demands literarily to read beneath the surface. And I think of this with Jesus's own ministry, when he's talking about water at the well with the Samaritan woman in John 4. And in short order, that conversation is no longer about actual water and an actual well. And he does this so masterfully with his teachings. Now, certain genres will lend very easily to allegorical reading. You can think about visions, visions from Ezekiel or Isaiah where or Daniel, where their prophecies expect you to recognize they're using poetic figurative imagery, and it represents something else. So allegory works by representation. It works by some sort of understood symbol, whether it's a, a particular image of a tree or a vine or an image in Daniel's prophecy in chapter eight of a ram or a goat. These don't actually turn out to be historical rams and goats. And so we have to, we have to allow for patient reading and canonical reading to make other connections. But there are literary reasons in genres to have a deeper reading of the text. And I think Jesus's parables, which come to mind now, uh, would be another illustration of this. Mark chapter four, he gives you the different soils that the farmer sows the seed on. And those soils, well, he's not actually talking about dirt or actual seed. These are actually the conditions of people's hearts that for one reason or another, don't receive the word with the exception being the good soil. Jesus's own parables then lend themselves to an allegorical reading because the, the different elements of the parable represent other things. We might easily overread details in parables or other, other uh, places like in the visions, um, but that doesn't negate the importance of recognizing that symbols and representation are going on here. And when we, when we flow with that kind of reading, we are engaging in allegorical reading. So the parables give us definite genre clues look for symbols and their meaning. For example, the text will say, Jesus told them a parable saying, and at the end of many of them, not all, he explains to, to the disciples, you know, the meaning of the symbols, the, the reapers who come in are the angels and the tares and the wheat are the unbelievers and the believers. So we've got excellent textual warrant to find the allegorical, the symbolic meaning of these things. Let me mention another passage that you bring up, and you explain to me what is the warrant for our finding, you know, detail uh, meaning underneath the surface here. You mentioned John the Baptist. I want to say it's a Matthew three four um, coming to them, uh, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And you spend a little time talking about this. Why? shouldn't I just be satisfied with saying, here are the two things that John the Baptist consumed while he lived in the wilderness? Why do I have to find, um, now that sounds awfully conf confrontational, encourage me with why I ought to find more meaning there? Yeah, this, I love the example of John the Baptist because I think it, it, it serves how, a, it serves the, the illustration of how a narrative can invite us to see deeper significance here. There are plenty of readers who will look at the story of John the Baptist and what he's eating and not have to read anything into what his meal is. And they will look at his teachings about repentance in the kingdom and his baptism in the Jordan, and they are getting main takeaways, no doubt. So what I'm about to suggest doesn't mean if someone doesn't interpret it this way, they don't understand what John the Baptist is about. Not at all. But the writer does tell us details in Mark's gospel and in parallel accounts about what John was wearing, as well as what John was eating. And we might ask, well, why was it important for what he was wearing? Well, he's wearing this garment of hair. He's got uh, these interesting parallels to Elijah in 2 Kings 1.8. And in 2 Kings, you know, Elijah is to have this particular garment um, because as the prophet of Israel, he is going around um, though persecuted and though fleeing from time to time, he is a voice of God's word to the people. And John the Baptist is reminiscent of that. If John the Baptist's detailed clothing connect us to Elijah, which commentaries will acknowledge all over the place, um, what would we say about his diet? Well, maybe these details are significant as well, just like his dress was. If he's eating locusts and wild honey, 
and there was Old Testament background about his dress, what's the significance in the Old Testament about locusts and wild honey? And that's the kind of question I'm wanting to ask. I don't want to say what in my imagination comes to mind when I think of locusts and wild honey. And I want that to be the meaning of John. Another reader could equally offer something subjective from their own imagination. So what I want to ask is, how is honey and how were locusts significant in the Old Testament? Well, locusts were very uh, popular examples of judgment. You see these locusts warned about in the covenant code itself in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. You see locusts being a plague upon Egypt. You see locusts um, used in the minor prophet Joel. Locusts were symbols of judgment for disobedience. Now, honey, honey is this luscious symbol, this vivacious symbol of the promised land. They're told in Exodus chapter three, that Moses is going to go and take them to the land flowing with milk and honey. And God's word in Psalm 119 and in Psalm 19 is like honey. It's something that's a blessing. It's a, it's wonderful to ingest. It, it denotes flourishing and vitality. Maybe we could tie John the Baptist's prophetic messages then to language about blessing and curse, honey and locusts. So I'm not wanting to offer just any read of locusts and wild honey, but if the diet seems significant, well, like a prophet, the words of John the Baptist are blessing in the kingdom of God and a woe to those who do not repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. And so maybe his diet as well as his dress contributes to that prophetic role. I heard you use the word maybe, and I heard you acknowledge that someone else might find other significance there. I also heard you say, here are the guardrails, and it's really the Old Testament, right? He's the last Old Testament prophet, the greatest Old Testament prophet. If you're going to find parallels, if you're going to find meaning in in those symbols, apparently, what, what he ate, then it's got to be within those guardrails. Let me ask then, Um, The people who listen to the Bible Study Magazine podcast or see it on YouTube or read about it in Bible Study Magazine, I think a lot of them are some kind of Bible teacher, even if it is just family devotions. How do you preach or teach that? How much maybe, how much hedging are you going to add there? Um, Or are you just going to say, I think these are symbols of this and here's my reasons why? When I'm teaching and preaching the Bible to our folks in Louisville, and when I'm teaching it to students, the the way that I go about it in both settings is I will say, here's a possible read of this, but is this the main point of the passage? So even in a sermon, I'm not going to have a whole sermon where I'm making this my argument. And I would encourage all Bible teachers and preachers to consider, we don't want to lose the forest for the trees, or in this case, the forest for like, you know, a limb with some leaves. Now they're interesting um, suggestions and it's interesting possible readings of the, of John the Baptist diet, but I would offer them hopefully with a humble suggestion and not dogmatism. And I would not at all want to take away from the main overall ideas unfolding in a place like Matthew three or or Mark one. And I think you can make the case of John's prophetic role without ever having to interpret a deeper significance to the locusts and wild honey. So I would want Bible teachers and and, uh, interpreters to not just run wild with ideas like this and make that the over and overarching and all-consuming read of the passes passage. It can be stimulating for readers, but it can also be helpful to make sure we're building up credibility with our own exegetical method and posture as a Bible teacher. If someone is initially exposed to us and we're talking about the deeper symbolic meaning of locusts and honey, they might be suspicious of us. So let's be known not for our allegorizing. Let's let's be known for making sure we are building a respectable and credible approach to scripture with our people so that when we do make a suggestion about locusts or wild honey, that doesn't necessarily sound off base to people. In fact, they might consider it even more. I, I love that answer. You make me think of some reading I've done in linguistics. Um, I still think of myself as an amateur because I don't have a lot of formal training in the area, but Somebody handed me a book um, by Ernst August Gut about relevance theory. And I don't remember if it was him or someone else who gave this crazy example that's always stuck in my mind. He said, what if someone comes to you at the airport 
and says, excuse me, my name is Sterling Risnick. Do you have the time? And you're thinking, well, I can give you the time, but why did you tell me your name? Yeah. What he's, the point he's making is that whenever someone communicates something to someone else, when, whenever they go to the trouble of mouthing the words or of writing them down or of copying them, what, what have you, there's the assumption of relevance. There's got to be some reason this detail was mentioned. And among the tons of things that happened in biblical times, you know, the vast majority of which are not recorded in scripture, why were these things mentioned? Mm. That also inclines me to want to say there's some relevance to the locusts and wild honey. Let me make sure I don't forget to ask you, because we've got to make this concrete, lest people feel like we're saying run wild, even though we repeatedly said don't run wild. What are some other good examples of allegorical interpretation that you think are disciplined by the text that have exegetical warrant? You know, one I was thinking about the other day is in 1 Samuel 17, where David fights Goliath. I believe that's 1 Samuel 17, chapter 16 or 17. And, um, you know, David is going to to slay Goliath with a slingshot, with a stone. And when he goes to the brook, um, when he's about to face Goliath, he, he removes five stones, we're told. Now, that's an interesting number. And sometimes allegorical readings will focus on numbers. So let's say we wondered... All right, five stones, David. Why would why would you do that? Now, there might be some in church history who would say maybe that represents the five elements or the five senses. Or now, I wouldn't see any reason exegetically to do that. However, what is interesting is he's about to go fight a Philistine, and in Philistia there are five Philistine cities. And so, if you have a historical exegetical reason to recognize here's Goliath from one of those cities, if there's any significance to the stone, we would say that it is because there would be historical city cities, the Philistine in front of him is representing them, and David is about to go show the supremacy of God over his enemies. And I don't think we'd have to read anything more into those stones than that. But that would be one way of suggesting some significance but I don't think that's a far-fetched significance. I think you could demonstrate that it's not eight stones and not two. If there's any reason for five, what might that be? Um, so that's an example from a narrative. I've mentioned earlier something like Daniel 8, where in Daniel 8, there's a ram and a goat who are warring against each other. These will eventually represent the Persian empire and the Greek empire as Alexander the Great conquers the Persians. That's actually interpreted in Daniel chapter 8. And so when we see um, when we see angelic interpretation there, we have it on biblical authority in Daniel 8 of what that means. So what's helpful too in Jesus's parables is he will often explain what he means by certain elements. Um, we're helped then by certain authoritative interpretations. Other times we're left with, okay, I'm, there's not a significance the biblical author explicitly ascribes to this. Do I have any textual reason to say anything else besides maybe this number here or this person here? And uh, and there may be reason for it, but I want to defend it from, from textual arguments, uh, with textual arguments. I don't want to just say, well, you know, my opinion is and my, you know, uh, what my feeling on the matter that's not an argument. And so I want to be able to show textually why I would read a deeper significance into something. And I hope this would uh, ally any fears that a reader would have reading any book that is opening the door for any kind of allegorical interpretation. A reader would rightly be concerned, wait a second, we don't want to just make the text say whatever we want it to say. No, no way. Neither do I, and neither do you. And in fact, we want to make sure when we're interpreting anything, we've got good grounds and justification for it. So, are there are there times when you you know a little um, you know neuron fires in your brain that says maybe this has allegorical significance, and you consider it for a while, and you just can't connect it to anything else in the text, and you say probably not. Let's leave that one aside. Does that happen? I think so. I think so. And I think we want to we want to be able to have that kind of restraint as interpreters and not think any notion that comes to our minds needs to be carried through and proclaimed and preached. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's helpful to ask other trusted Bible teachers and uh, mature and wise Bible readers in our midst, hey, I was reading this the other day. 
And I wondered about this interpretation. What do you think? Because like the Proverbs tell us, one case seems convincing until another one comes along and then makes their case. And so we might find out, you know what? Yeah, that was just overreading it, I think. Uh, and we could also consult some historical interpreters from the great tradition. You know, have they wondered about this? And what were their suggestions? Um, I think it's a way of wanting to adopt a humble posture in our present situatedness of 2021 and in light of another believing community around us. We want to read the Bible with the community of the saints, with the great cloud of witnesses. And that means we need to be willing to say, you know what, I think I'm going astray here. I think I've overthought it over here. And we might also need instincts typologically or allegorically to be developed. Maybe we are underseeing what's there. I remember listening to uh, Pastor and Professor Robert Smith say one time, um, I would rather see Christ where he isn't than miss him where he is. And so if we were to err on one side or the other, I, I would want to consider ways of, of beholding Christ in the word and proclaiming Christ from the word. We will all make mistakes as interpreters. I I feel like I'm in the middle of a maelstrom, truly, of uh, theological and exegetical thoughts because of growing up in a circumstance in which I just felt like too often the Bible's getting abused mm. to make it support things that I just don't see it saying. Okay, I feel like I swung the pendulum too far the other way to the point where I just didn't even know why we have these Old Testament stories. Then I get the redemptive historical approach to Scripture, which swings me back the other way. And then sometimes I'm feeling like you're finding you're finding too quick of a road to Christ, like you need to let this individual passage speak its message before we get there. Um, and I feel like uh, it probably wasn't so great for me to read your book and then interview you right afterwards, because I don't have a lot of mature reflection on some of these thoughts. I am just fascinated, and you really got me interested here. It, it's not like a, it's all brand new, but let me tell you some of the things that the Lord has already brought together in my Bible study journey that I think you have have helped either put a capstone on or just help me take the further step in. One is about that great tradition. Um, I've I I feel like I do want the rootedness and the um, the assurance that comes with knowing I'm not saying history is bunk. That. Jesus promised that the Spirit would guide you into all truth has been operative for all these centuries. I would indeed be scared if I were to find out that the way I read the Bible is radically dissimilar from what everybody else has done in the past. So, connecting me to my past, I, I like that. And then, you know, I'm a Bible guy. And I think everybody, I hope everybody who listens to this podcast or watches it is a Bible person. And so, if you can give me Bible reasons, textual reasons to say, boy, I ought to be looking for ways that the text points forward typologically. I ought to be alert to the possibility of greater significance than I'm seeing um, because the Bible says so, then I'm all over that. It's going to be a years-long process. Let me uh, end with a question that does get a little more practical. In my experience, what I've been trying to do to honor these desires and impulses that I'm finding in myself as I'm trying to follow the Lord here, trying to dig into that great tradition, uh, not be historically myopic or guilty of what Lewis calls chronological snobbery. I've been using the Ancient Christian Commentary series and the Reformation Commentary series, and I just try to dip in on a very regular basis just to get myself into the shoes of people who lived a long, long time ago uh, do you think that is sufficient for most people in their Bible study? What what other steps would you encourage them to take to actually find their way into the the use of the great tradition as a, as a as a cloud of witnesses helping them with their typological and even and it still hurts me to say it allegorical interpretation of Scripture? Yeah. I, I love those resources that you just mentioned. I think that is a great avenue and definitely a sufficient way of bringing deeper Bible study into your uh, context and trying to become more historically aware hermeneutically. It's all about reading primary sources. You know, if you're if you're taking excerpts in those Reformation commentaries, you're reading 
primary sources that have been put together and, and edited and collated for the benefit of the reader. And that is a tremendous blessing. There is even, um, I forget uh, the, the name of it that the CSB puts out. I think it's called the Ancient Faith Study Bible. I could be butchering that title, but that's another example of something that they have tried to, uh, for, for our 2021 moment, give readers of study Bibles and lovers of study Bibles a resource that takes them deeply into the past. We need that. Uh, we, need to, we need to read things from Augustine. We need to read things from Irenaeus. And what I love about um, our modern era right now with all of the technology is you have all of this at your fingertips, right? So you don't have to go spend tons of money, though you could, on wonderfully nice and mint condition sets that might just sit unused. You know, I've got some sources like that that I once thought I'm going to buy this and use it, and I have not used it like I had hoped. And yet we can go online and we can search treasure troves of materials. And I would love for Bible scholars and readers to do this, Bible teachers to do this, to wonder not just, you know, has D.A. Carson written something about this passage in John, which he definitely would have, but what does Augustine say as well? Or anything from Irenaeus? Um, is there anything from John Chrysostom? The, these questions can be roads of deeper uh, biblical enrichment for us. And I would I would encourage us as Bible readers to do that for sure. Yeah, this podcast is not all about sales. Anybody who's listened to it will know I'm not hawking wares. But when I talk about Logos Bible software, it's because I actually use it and love it. And one of the biggest reasons that I love it is that I bought commentaries that sat on my shelf for years and I never actually used you know, maybe it is just my laziness, but the fact that Logos with the passage guide allows me to type one Bible passage and then I just get a whole list of links to my commentaries and I can order it so that the ancient Christian commentary ends up, you know, near the top. I usually have the New International series at the very top. I have them prioritized. So I make sure to have it in front of me. It doesn't just sit on the shelf. What, what I have found is that if I believe that the Spirit is guiding us into all truth. If I believe that in general, Christ has given lots of good teachers to his church, though I recognize they differ denominationally and, and otherwise, then I often like to do a referendum, a plebiscite among my commentators and see what are they all saying? Um, listen to their argumentation too, and almost just like make a tally, you know, how many of them think that Jephthah actually killed his daughter? How many of them think that no, he, you know, consigned her to a virginity or something like that? On all kinds of exegetical questions, Lagos Bible software enables me to um, dig into the great tradition. Heavily weighted toward today, I admit, but I self-consciously added ancient Christian commentary and Reformation commentary to make sure that's not happening. Also, uh, Augustine and Luther I have show showing up in that list. Um, I read this past year, Breaking Bread with the Dead by Alan Jacobs. Uh, and in a year where I'm not taking any political positions here, but where there is a maelstrom of political views and to go on social media of any kind is to be riled up no matter who you are. I'm, I'm looking for tranquility, which is the subtitle of that book. And he's saying, one of the big things you can do is go back and read old stuff. Let the clean sea breeze of a previous century blow through your mind. They might not have seen all the truths that we see, but they see some truths that we don't see. That's right. Uh, so this is a good encouragement you've given me and something, Lord willing, I'm trying to do this year. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, you are a gifted guy. I'm just, I just really want to say this. Not every book that I read is equally well-written. I'm an editor and I notice these things. I love the 40 questions format. Can you give the title of your book one more time? I don't have it right in front of me right now. 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory. It's put out in that series by Craigle. A number of my friends have put out books in that series. Um, you had me really interested in the narrative structure there, where you would go through church history, the different eras, and, t and talk about the way typology and then later about the way allegory was used. Um, that had me going. You also had me very interested in the portions where you were doing the exegetical work to show why we ought to give attention to typological and allegorical readings. I just want to thank you for that work and recommend it to others. Uh, Dr. Pastor Mitch Chase, thank you so much for giving us your time and coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Honored to be with you. Thank you. Wow. 
That was stimulating for both mind and heart. I am going to be thinking about this conversation and this book by Mitch Chase for a long time. Two little neurons in my own brain, namely anger and fear from the Pixar movie Inside Out, fire every time I hear the word allegory. I was a bit of a skeptical reader when I picked up Chase's book, but I saw the glowing recommendations from people I trust, including Nancy Guthrie, who was recently on the podcast, and I plowed ahead, and I was rewarded. I feel like Mitch Chase helped me bring my Bible reading plumb line back a little bit toward where it was in my youth, and I think and hope that means it's now truly plumb. I just want to submit myself to everything the Bible says, in every way the Bible says what it says. I want to do good Bible study. I need to give a huge thank you to Jack Underwood for his excellent, courteous, and timely work on the Bible Study Magazine podcast this past season. Not only audio, but video now for 12 episodes. He handled it all with apparent ease. A third season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast is currently in the early planning stages. If you have anyone you'd like to hear from, or any Bible passage or Bible study topic that you'd like to hear about, let me know in the comments on the YouTube video version of this podcast, or contact me at editor at BibleStudyMagazine.com. I'm Mark Ward. Thank you for joining us for the Bible Study Magazine podcast.